Galatians chapter number three is our text. Let me remind you of something that I'm confident you don't need to be reminded of at all. I mean, honestly, who among us could forget? That just one year ago, literally last summer, um, our nation was in a desperate state of affairs. Do you remember? We were, a year ago, as divided as a country as we've ever been, I believe, in the history of our land, perhaps since the days of the Civil War. Many of the streets of our major cities had become like war zones. I mean, literally, the scenes that we were watching unfold on the news last summer looked like something that you would see on the news from some third world country where chaos would reign in the streets. Businesses were being looted and buildings were being burned and violent protests were erupting everywhere across the nation. In many cities, there were parts of those cities where the police had just, been, had just retreated. Um, even police precincts being, bur- being evacuated and then burned to the ground. Um, there were parts of our nation where autonomous zones were set up and the police were not welcome and, and uh, there were armed men who were walking those streets enforcing whatever type of rule might have been reigning there. It was a terrible time, and and all of us remember it. Now, here's the truth about that. Um, Much of what was happening last um, summer, much of that division was being fomented by some very powerful groups. The, The news media was one. I think we would all agree was just fomenting that racial division. Groups like BLM and other racially motivated groups had one agenda, and that agenda was that In America, every single person, our attitude toward other people, our interactions with other people would always be informed by and and motivated by the color of, of the skin, our skin or theirs. And this division that was being pushed throughout the country got worse and worse and worse until it just until it just exploded. Now, by the way, you need to know that while the violence has been quelled uh, for the most part, um, that agenda is still operating in the country, even today, with things like CRT being pushed in, in some places around the country and the 1619 Project and some other things. There's still this push to divide uh, America along the lines of race. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, last year, um, I addressed this from this very pulpit. We talked on August the 23rd about the subject of racism, what the Bible says about racism and how God views racism. And we noted three unassailable truths. One is that racism of any kind is absolute sin. Would you shout amen if you agree with that? It is absolute sin. We agreed together that there are not multiple races. There are many nations, but there's only one race, the human race. Our life is in the blood, and we are not divided along the lines of race in terms of of God's view of humanity. We also talked about the fact last year in, in that message, and if you'll recall, it was part of a little series that we did called, Does God Have the Answers? And we were asking the question, does God have the answer to racism? And, um, and I said to you that, ra- that the answer to racism will be found 
at the foot of the cross of Jesus. Here was the principle, that racial reconciliation has to happen at the cross because it's the cross that breaks down the walls that divide us and brings us together. And we said that uh, racial reconciliation must happen, first of all, in the church and then be extended from the church out through the culture. But it must happen at the cross. And when we come together at the cross, we recognize that in Christ, we're all one family, right? Red, yellow, black, and white, as a little children's song says, they're precious in his sight. And so there is unity, there's oneness, there's, there is um, reconciliation that happens at the cross. Now it's that conviction, that, that deep conviction, that, that reconciliation in any relationship, a reconciliation among the races, is found in Christ crucified. It is that deep conviction that is driving everything that Paul is going to say to us today from Galatians chapter number 3. Now the division that he's dealing with in this passage is not the division between blacks and whites, but it's the division between Jews and Gentiles. And what Paul is doing in Galatians, in the whole book, but certainly in Galatians 3, is that he is bringing the Gentile and bringing the Jew and he is drawing them together to the cross. And he's saying, at the cross of Christ, when you see Christ crucified, that is the place where you can find reconciliation, where you can come together. Let me give you a little bit of a review just as a reminder of the things that we've talked about so far in the first three weeks of this study through the book of Galatians. You'll remember that the the book of Galatians in our Bible, we've learned, is the letter that Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, which were being infected by a false teaching. And the false teaching was the teaching of legalism. It was the teaching that said that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, must essentially become Jews in order to be a Christian, that you could not be saved if you did not keep the law of God. That's the dividing point. And the result of that, the logical, the very reasonable result of that was that it divided the church between Jews and Gentiles, the spiritual haves and have-nots, if you will. It divided them so that everybody in these churches that were infected by this teaching were beginning to look at one another through the lens of their Jewishness or not, their ethnicity. And the Jews were shaming the Gentiles for not keeping the law, for eating the wrong foods, for not being circumcised. They they were shaming these sub-Christians if they were Christians at all, the Jews believed. And the Gentiles were then at the same time um, despising the Jews because they were so proud of their accomplishments in keeping the law. And it it was ripping the church apart. And so Paul writes this letter to deal with this division. And he's calling the people of Galatia to repentance and reconciliation in Christ and at the cross. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul crafts masterfully. He crafts an argument for them to say this. That you will be reconciled and this issue will be resolved when we get a right understanding of the crucifixion of Christ, of Christ who died for us. 
Now let's begin reading it in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. We're just going to read the first five verses to begin with. You follow along. Galatians 3 verse 1, he writes, O foolish Galatians, you fools, he says. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been so evidently or clearly set forth as being crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? And have you suffered or experienced so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? Verse 5, he therefore that ministers to you the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now literally, as I've already mentioned, we've seen since the first chapter of Galatians and the sixth verse, because it's in the sixth verse of this book that Paul launches right out into this confrontation, and there's no other word to use for it. It is a confrontational letter that Paul writes to the Galatians. From chapter 1, verse 6, he has been making this point that there is only one way to be right with God. Not two ways, not five ways, not many ways. There's one way. And you can be right with God. That is, you can be justified. You can be brought into a relationship with God on the basis of Christ, which presents you before God as having been made perfectly righteous. You can find that relationship with God only by grace through faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. Nothing else. Not keeping the law, not being a good person, not going to church. Nothing else is going to make you right with God. So he's been making that point since the first chapter. In chapter 3, though, he does something a little different. He changes his tactic just a little bit, and he begins to build this argument on the basis of their own experience. Now watch what he says. Look with me in verse number 2. He says, how did you receive the Spirit? Now, what does that mean? Receive the Spirit. It means that the Spirit of God indwells them. It means that, the, that, that God himself, by his Holy Spirit, has taken up residence within them. Just as he has taken up residence and indwells every believer, he was indwelling these Galatian believers. He says, that's the blessing, the goodness, the kindness of God in your life. He's with you. He indwells you. But look at what he says in verse number 5. He goes on in verse number 5 to speak about the fact that the Spirit is ministering to you. Now, how does the Spirit minister to them? Well, same way he ministers to us. The Spirit saved them. The Spirit was keeping them saved. The Spirit was comforting them. The Spirit was guiding them. The Spirit was illuminating truth to them. The Spirit was empowering them for the Christian life. The Spirit was doing for those Galatian believers the exact same things that he does for us. He was ministering to them. And he even says in verse number 5 that this present ministry, this active ministry of the Holy Spirit in you is so powerful that he's even working miracles among you. He's, he's doing things that no other uh, can be explained no other way except by the miraculous power of God. We experience the miracles of God in our midst as well. So he says you've received the Spirit, the Spirit is ministering to you, and the Spirit of God is at work among you. Now here's his question. How'd that happen? 
Why is that going on? Why does the Holy Spirit live in you and why is he working among you? Is it because you've kept the law? Is that why he's doing it? Is the Spirit of God indwelling you, Gentile men, because you've followed in the Jewish rite of circumcision? Is that why he's among you? Is the Spirit of God working among you and and working miracles because you're eating the right foods? You're following the kosher dietary laws? You're honoring the Jewish festivals and high holy days? Is that what it's all about? You're learning to keep the Jewish laws? Is that why God is working among you? Was it by the law or was it by faith? Was it by God's grace through faith or was it because you've been good people and you're becoming more Jewish? And his answer is obvious. His, his, it's a rhetorical question, really. His answer is obviously God is indwelling you, blessing you, working among you, ministering to you because you've trusted in Christ, not because you've done any of these works. In fact, he would say that God had given you these blessings before you ever tried to keep the first Jewish law. So look at verse 1. Here's this question. So what happened? What happened to you? Oh, foolish Galatians. The word foolish means mindless. Like you're not thinking rightly. You're, you're, you've been brainwashed. What's happened to the way that you think. I love the way that the Phillips translation translates verse number one of Galatians. Uh, Phillips wrote it this way when he translated it. He said, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. <laughs> Isn't that good? Now, the Phillips translation was done for a youth group, right? So he said, oh, you uh, idiots of Galatia, are you truly so idiotic? You can't be so idiotic as to believe Look at verse number one. Oh, you Galatian idiots, are you foolish Galatians? Who has bewitched you? You know the truth. He says, it's, it, was bef- it was when I was among you, verse number one, Christ has been so clearly declared among you as having been crucified. What, what he's saying is when I was there with you, when I came, when Barnabas and I came in Acts and we preached to you in Acts 14 and we told you the truth, do you remember what we said? We clearly, without any ambiguity at all, we made it obvious to you that Christ was crucified and every benefit that you have in God comes through the crucified Christ. He said, you know this. If you don't know anything else, you know that because I told you that. And I have to tell you, as I read that this week and I was preparing to say these words to you, I was convicted in my heart and I prayed this prayer Oh God, may it ever be so at Brookstone Church. In the years that God lets me serve here, may it be able to be said that if you as the congregation knew nothing else ever, that you would know this, Christ died for your sins. And that that would be the testimony that we would know. And that when you stand before God Almighty, you might try to raise all sorts of protests, but one thing you will not be able to say is, I sat in Brookstone Church week after week and I did not know about the cross. May it be said you did because you clearly heard that Christ was crucified. This is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, what's happened to you? How are you believing these things when you have so clearly heard the truth? Of the cross. 
you can almost hear the emotion in Paul's voice in verse number one. It's like he's weeping when he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The word bewitch means to practice sorcery. It's like somebody's cast a spell on you. It's like you've been brainwashed. And I love what what Paul does in this passage, it's, it's as if he takes all of the teaching of the legalizers and he narrows it down, 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 down to one specific entity. Who is, the, who is the one that has bewitched you? Not the teaching of the legalizers, not the teachers themselves, but who is the responsible one for your deception? And Paul clearly has in mind Satan. Satan is the deceiver. And he's the liar. And I need to say to you today that Satan still lies to Christians. He does it every day. Because Satan cannot undo your salvation. He cannot take you out of God's family. He cannot cause you to be lost forever. So his singular agenda in your life is to tell you lies, to feed you things that are not true, and to keep you from what is true so that the life you live now, though you're in Christ, will be based more upon untruth than truth, and it will lead you astray, limiting your joy, limiting your effectiveness, limiting your impact for Christ. Satan lies to you. He lies to us about sin. He tells us that sin is no big deal. He lies to us and says, who will ever know? It's just a little thing. Everybody's doing it. It's not going to hurt anybody after all. He lies and lies and lies and lies about sin until he draws us into it and he doesn't tell us the truth. He lies to us about our own security. He tries to take away our security in Christ. He says, God doesn't love you. God wouldn't really save you. God's really mad at you. He lies to us about whether or not we're secure in Christ. He lies to us about ourselves. You're unworthy. You're used good. You're all washed up. God can never use you. You've made too many mistakes. You're too old. You're too young. You're too whatever. He lies to us about ourselves. He lies to us about Scripture. He says, you can't believe it, it's unreliable, it's full of contradictions, it's not the truth, it's unimportant. He lies about scripture. And here's what I want to say to you. In all of the ways that Satan lies to you, here's what I would commend to you. Come back to the cross. And when when you're believing the lies, you come running back to the foot of the cross and in the shadow of the cross of Christ, you will find what is true. This is what Paul says. You know the truth. You know about the cross, and you shouldn't be believing this. And so he's making this point over and over again, and now using their own personal experience, it is simply to say that it's here, it's at the cross, that we are made right with God. And it is at the cross that we are kept in fellowship with God. And then in verse 6, and I don't want you to miss this. If y'all are listening, say amen. In verse 6, there's a stroke of genius. In verse number six, he makes a turn in his argument that is absolutely genius. He says, you're right with God and you're kept right with God only by faith in what God has done. Verse six, just like Abraham. And every Jew went, Abraham, the great patriarch Abraham. And beginning in verse number six, he begins to talk to them about Abraham, write this down, and the covenant of promise. 
Abraham and the covenant of promise. In fact, he hasn't mentioned Abraham previous to chapter 3, verse 6. And now, beginning in chapter 3, verse 6, eight times in the next 20, 23 verses, he's going to refer over and over to Abraham. Now, the Judaizers, the legalists, the ones who were saying, if you don't keep the law, you can't be saved, they had a hero as well. Their hero was Moses. They were focused on Mount Sinai and the law that was given by God to Moses. That law that was codified in the Torah, their scriptures. And they were focused completely on Moses. And so you know what, you know what the, Paul does in, in chapter 3? He, 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 he goes beyond, he goes back before Moses. The Judaizers kept coming back to Moses. They kept bringing these Christians back to the law that Moses gave them. Saying, you've got to do what Moses said. You've got to do what Moses said. You've got to do what Moses said. And so Paul goes, wait a minute. And he goes hundreds of years before Moses, all the way back to Abraham. And he says, let's see what God said to Abraham before Moses was even born. I love this. It's genius. He begins to talk to them about this Abrahamic covenant. Look at verse number 8. Chapter 3, verse number 8. He says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, that's the Gentiles, through faith. Stop right there. That's the whole point, right? That's the whole argument. How do the Gentiles get justified? By works or faith? He says God knew that he was going to do it by faith. And so because God knew he was going to do it by faith, verse number 8 says, God preached the gospel to Abraham. Hello. How would you like for God to be your gospel preacher? He says in verse 8, God preached the gospel to Abraham. What was the message of the gospel? What was the good news? That God preached to Abraham. Here it is, end of verse number eight. God preached the gospel to Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the Gentile nations be blessed. Loved ones, I don't want you to miss this. Please, please listen carefully. When the Bible says that God preached good news to Abraham, telling Abraham that all the Gentile nations were gonna be blessed like he was blessed, he wasn't just saying, Abraham, I'm gonna bless all the people. By being nice to them. It's going to be good to them. They're just going to get a blessing. Now here's what it means. Abraham, I'm taking the blessing that I'm giving to you. If y'all listening, say amen. amen. And I'm going to give the Gentiles the same blessing. Not just going to be nice to them. I'm going to give them the same blessing. This is, this is beautiful. Hold your finger in Galatians chapter number 3 and go all the way back to the book of Genesis all the way back to where God preaches the gospel to Abraham. I'm in Genesis chapter number 12. Genesis 12, beginning in verse number 1. Listen to what he says. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham, get out of your country from your family, away from your father's house. Leave everything that you know. Leave what's familiar. Leave what's safe. Leave everything that you know, follow me into a land which I will show you. And if you'll do this, if you'll trust me, if you'll come with me, then I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. Now, when that verse says that I'm going to make of you a great nation, it means you're going to have a lot of descendants. Your your descendants are going to be so many, they're going to become a great nation. 
Now, by the way, look at verse number four. So Abraham departed as uh, the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 70, or Abram was 75 years old when he departed Haran. When God made the promise, Abraham was 75 years old. Sarah, his wife, a few years younger, they had never had children. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that the womb of Sarah was dead. It was impossible for her to have children. But God said to this 75-year-old man, to this old couple, you're going to have many children that are going to be like a great nation. It's an impossible thing to believe. But the New Testament tells us that Abraham believed against hope. He did not consider the deadness of Sarah's womb or the deadness of his own body. He did not consider biological problems uh, an impedance to the miracles of God. And he just believed what God had said. I'm going to make you a great nation. Uh, I skip verse number three. Look at it. I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curses thee, and in you, Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All the families of the earth are going to get. From all the families of the earth, there will be those who will receive the blessing that is coming to you. Turn one page. Now, that, by the way, that's called the Abrahamic covenant. Skip over to chapter 15. I'm in Genesis 15. Look at verse number five. Verse 5 says, And he, God, brought Abraham forth, said to him, Look up toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed or your offspring or your children be. It's an impossible thing to believe, but verse 6 says, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord. Abraham believed. He trusted by faith that God would do what he said he would do. He believed. And the verse goes on to say in verse number 6, And God reckoned or counted his belief for righteousness. Now watch this. If, if Abraham had a ledger, and on the one side of the ledger was his righteousness, and on the other side of the letter, ledger was his unrighteousness, you should know that the unrighteous column was full of all of the sins of Abraham, just like yours and my ledger is full on the unrighteous side, right? And on the righteousness side, guess how much there was to count? Nothing. Because the Bible says our righteousness is even filthy in the eyes of God, and that there's none of us that do righteous, no, not one. So Abraham's ledger was all unrighteousness, no righteousness, until God made him an unbelievable promise. And Abraham believed the unbelievable promise, and verse 6 says God took Abraham's faith and put it on the righteous side of the ledger and counted him righteous and removed all of the unrighteousness and called him. That is justification that Abraham received, and he received it by faith. Now go back from Genesis 15, go back to Galatians chapter number 3. Galatians chapter number 3, and look with me, with me in verse number 9. Verse 9 says, So then, they which be of faith. Can I take a quick survey? If you are of the faith, if you're in the faith of Christ, would you shout amen? amen. Listen to verse 9. So then, they, all of you who just said am, uh, amen, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Well, amen. The eternal life. The blessing that God promised to Abraham has extended beyond Moses and the law. It has extended to everyone who will do what Abraham did, everyone who will trust in Christ. 
Now, as Paul has been doing all through the book of Galatians, he now, in chapter 3, again begins to talk about the two paths to righteousness that people choose, or people may choose. He's been talking about works or law versus uh, faith and grace, okay? Now he does this same thing in chapter 3, but he adds to it the personalities of Abraham and Moses. So he says, path number one is the path of Abraham, the path of faith. Path number two is the path of Moses or the path of the law. And you should know that Paul was an expert in the law and the prophets. And so in making this argument, in drawing this distinction, he brings the law and the prophets. He quotes multiple passages from the Old Testament in Galatians to bring those voices of the prophets and the law to bear Upon the argument. A couple of things. Look at the, the, the path of Moses. Look at verse number 10. He says in verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law. If you choose the path of the law. Now I need to say something to you before I finish that verse. I asked you earlier, if we were having coffee, and I said to you, if you were to stand before God today, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? You need to know that if you go ask 10 people that question this afternoon, nine of them at least are going to give you a works answer. They're going to say, I'm a good person. I go to church. I was baptized. I was raised a Christian. I was yada. I, I, I do, I do, I do. It's a works answer. Here's what verse number 10 says. Look at it. Verse number 10, as many as are of the works of the law, that is, as many of you as who choose that answer, if that's your answer, you choose that path. He says in verse 10, if you choose the works of the law, then know this, you are under a curse. For it is written, he's quoting Deuteronomy 26, cursed is everyone that does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The curse comes not in the laws that you do keep, but in the ones that you fail to keep. And so he says, if you're going to choose a works salvation, you can do it, just know this, you better keep every law perfectly every day of your life because if you violate one law one time, you're cursed. It's your choice. You can choose it if you want to, but beware of the curse. Look at what he says in in, uh, chapter number 3 and verse number 12. He says in that verse, and the law is not a faith, but rather it's a doing uh, path. The man that does them shall live in them. If you keep the law perfectly, you will be able to live. Here's what he's saying in verse number 12. If you're going to choose to approach God on the basis of your behavior, your good works, your keeping the law, know this, you will live and die by how well you do. If you're going to choose the law, then you get it perfect, you live by it, you make it in. You'll be the only person in the history of humanity who ever lived perfectly other than Jesus. But if you choose the law and you make one mistake, you die by the mistake you made. Now, this is Paul's point. There's a path. It's the path of Moses. You can choose it. It's the path of the law. Or there's the path of Abraham. And the path of Abraham is the path of faith. It's the path of grace. He talks about that in verse number 11. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for... The just shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk 2 and verse number 4. The just, those who are justified, will receive eternal life, not by what they do, but by their faith. They will live by faith. He says in verse number 13, 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law? What is the curse of the law? It's the curse that comes upon the person who fails in one point to keep the law, as I've been discussing. So if you choose the law and you fail, you're cursed. But here's the path of Abraham. Here's the path of faith. Christ came, the son of Abraham. He came and he took our curse, verse 13 says. He bore our curse and was made a curse for us. Quoting Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree. In verse number 14, he goes on to say, so that the blessing of Abraham, the same blessing that Abraham received, might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Do you see what he's doing? It's, it's masterful. He's taking these Jews and Gentiles who are choosing opposite paths and and those who have chosen Christ are being drawn back into choosing this works path. And he says, look, there's two paths. They're very distinct and you've got to decide which one you're on. Verses 15, 16, and 17 then are almost like a pause because what happens in those verses, they're parenthetical. It's almost as if Paul steps back and he goes, I know this is complicated, but let me give you an illustration. So, So he illustrates it. Every preacher knows that illustrations are helpful, right? They, they flesh out truth. So he's been giving them this truth from the law and the prophets, this masterful argument about the path of Moses versus the path of Abraham. And he says, let me, let me explain it this way. Verse 15, 16, and 17, essentially what he says is this. When you make a, a will, a last will and testament, and it's, a, it's affirmed, it's certified, it cannot be changed. When you make a covenant, a, a will, and you say, this is the way I want my my heirs to receive. It's what I want those who are coming behind me to receive. Then somebody can't just come in and go, no, let's don't do it that way. Let's do it another way. No, it's immutable. You can't just change it. He says, if man's covenants are that secure, how much more secure is the covenant that God made with us through Abraham? Look at it, verse number 16, I believe, or verse uh, number 17. He says, in this I say that the covenant which was confirmed before of God in Christ, that's the Abrahamic covenant, if that covenant was confirmed by God, the law, which came by Moses hundreds of years later, over 400 years later, the law cannot disannul the covenant of grace or the covenant of promise that God made with Abraham. He's simply saying, That when God made this Abrahamic covenant with us that we are saved by faith, it will never be changed by any law. It's the end of the story. Put a period. Put an exclamation point. There's no semicolon. There's no comma. It's the end of the story. God made a covenant. We are saved by grace through faith. If you understand, say amen. That's Paul's point. He says this is the way we are saved regardless of the law. (laughs) And you can almost hear Paul's detractors going, and maybe some of you as well, going, well, then what's the point of the law? If God was going to save us by grace all along, why did he send Moses 400 plus years later and give us a law? It's a great question, but I don't have time to answer it today. So you got to come back next week because Paul answers it. And we're going to deal with the answer to that question. We'll deal with it next week. Let me close, though, by taking you to the last couple of verses of Galatians chapter number 3. Let's talk about the family of faith. The family of faith. 
So God says to Abraham, hey, Abraham, um, you're going to have some descendants. You're going to have family. And because you've believed me, then I'm going to give the same blessing of eternal life that I'm giving to you. I'm going to give that blessing to all, uh, to, to your family who will believe in me. If you're like me, your response to that is to say, well, it doesn't really apply to me because I'm not Jewish. I haven't descended from Abraham, neither have most of you. I'm descendants of Europeans, pagans. You go far back, far back enough in my family tree, we were worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. I mean, there's no heritage of godliness that comes to me through Abraham, if it, if it can only go to his children. Look at chapter 3 of Galatians and verse 7. Know ye therefore. Everybody stop right there. Say this word. Say these words. No. Say no. K-N-O-W. No. Tell your neighbor. I know this. Tell him. I know this. I know this. What do I know? I know therefore that they which are of the faith. If you're of the faith, would you shout Amen. Those people are the children of Abraham. Well, praise the Lord. That the people who believe in God's promise like Abraham did are grafted into his family. And they become a part of the family of God. Skip all the way down to verse number 26. It's not only that we're the family of God, the children of Abraham, verse 26 says... For you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus. Not just Abraham's sons, we're God's sons and daughters by faith in Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no ethnicity in the family of God. Hey, listen to me. There's no red, yellow, black, or white in the family of God. He says there's, there's no uh, privileged race in God's family. Verse number 28 Neither is there free nor bond, slave or free man. He says there's, there's no preferred rank in the family of God. There's no rich and poor, educated, uneducated. We're just brothers, man. We have the same father. And we're brothers and sisters. There is no male nor female. There's no dominant superior gender in the body of Christ. We're just brothers and sisters in Christ. And he goes on to say in verse number 28, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's children, his seed. If you grew up in church world, you probably grew up singing, Father Abraham, remember that? Had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. That's what I guess. That's what we did in you know, Sunday school. If you've trusted in Christ, the blessing that God gave to Abraham way back in Genesis 6 or Genesis 12 has come over the law because Christ fulfilled the law, took our curse. It has come over the law and landed on you by faith, and you are Abraham's son or Abraham's daughter. That means that everything that God gave to Abraham is going to give to you. It was August the 16th, 2003. What is that? Almost 20 years ago. 
19 years ago, 18 years ago. Never was good at math. August the 16th, 2003, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was standing in a very nondescript, sparsely furnished courtroom. About a hundred miles south of the Siberian border in the far northern reaches of uh, Kazakhstan. And standing next to me was a 12-year-old little girl, weighed about 60 pounds, dripping wet. And she had been invited to become a part of mine and Tracy's family. We were there to adopt her. Christina Valerianovna Kuznetsova. Now, she was 12, so she got to decide whether or not she was coming to America. It's up to her. She had heard about America. She had heard about our family. She had seen pictures of our family. She had heard about a room that would be her own and a family that would be hers and, and how she would be loved and always have everything she needed. She had heard all of that. But she had never experienced any of it. And to a little orphan in an orphanage near Siberia, it was as hopeless a thing as you could imagine. Now, I understood about two words of Russian. But I knew when the question was asked to her, because every eye in the courtroom went to her little face. And she was asked the question, do you want to go with this man and be a part of his family? And one of the two words that I knew was the word da. Just yes. Da. And I looked, and she looked at me, and she went, da. And she came home. She became part of our family. And today, Christina is married and has children and serves the Lord and, and is part of our family. And everything that we have is hers. And she'll be an heir to our <laughs> not-so-vast estate, but what is there? <laughs> she will be a part of. She will be an heir because a little girl who could never have worked her way out of the orphanage, let alone across the country and across the oceans and to, the, to America, who could never have found her own way there, simply believed a promise and said yes. And she was swept into our family. This is the gospel. It's not the way of Moses. It's the way of Abraham, the way of faith. And so my question is, have you said yes? Have you said yes to Jesus? If not, why don't you do that today?